Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Uh, thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. So we try to do what we always do, turn down the noise of the news cycle, get to the information that actually matters, skip all the caterwauling and nonsense, and try to do our best to do what's really important with news and information, discern the times we live in, maybe just a little bit better, so that we can be better and do better things. Let's start with ourselves and social media and news media there's an interesting phenomenon going on that is the latest trend in an ongoing thing that doesn't change but the names change and the nomenclature change and the viral part change and we need to understand why this works um we need to change how we do social media especially things like twitter facebook instagram one of the things that happened with Twitter over the last few years, and I've been on Twitter. That's kind of how my writing career started. That's how I got started doing media. I loved old Twitter. What's changed on Twitter is it's no longer kind of the headwaters of where information comes from. It used to be on Twitter. All the news media personalities were on there. All the publishers were on there. All the writers were on there. Everybody got a lot of information really quick and went out. What's changed on Twitter now is with Elon Musk pushing the new blue checks, which you pay for. And now they have a share, you know, content sharing program where you get money based on how many views you get. Now there's a formula to that. We'll talk about some other time. But this has changed how Twitter works and it changes how news media works because news media reacts to Twitter faster than it does Facebook and other things. Twitter is slowly losing relevance because of this, but you need to be informed on it because it flows over to things like Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. Catering not just to newsmakers and personalities and writers and people who have things to say, catering to people who are content creators changes your platform. It changes the business model. This is not a right or wrong thing. I'm just telling you how it is. Content creators have to get views and engagement to make their money. So, that's why things go viral that just become plug-and-play things. Whatever the latest thing that needs boycotted, that's what goes viral because that's what gets everybody engaged. There's two parts to how these things happen, and we're going to use the latest example. Let's talk a little Taylor Swift. Make my daughter really happy. Um, Taylor Swift's probably the biggest celebrity, uh, at least in America right now, perhaps on the planet outside of some soccer players. Everybody knows who Taylor Swift is. She's coming off the Eras Tour, which is one of the biggest tours of all time. Uh, people just losing their mind over this. You're having trouble getting tickets to watch a movie in a theater about the tour. This thing's huge. She's huge. She's very popular. Um, she went to an NFL game with Travis Kelsey, who's a star player for the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, I don't know what their relationship is. I don't particularly care. Having seen both of them in social media, I've got an idea. They're probably just having fun with people with this and playing the media a little bit, which in case would be even funnier. But anyway, she went to an NFL game. This is the uh, convergence of the biggest celebrity in America dealing with the biggest revenue-producing sport in the world. Now, soccer is more popular worldwide, but the NFL's revenue is bigger than the top five leagues in Europe combined by a factor of almost three. The NFL is huge. That's why we talk about it every once in a while. It's a cultural phenomenon. It's the biggest TV show on every network it's on, and it's not particularly close. The NFL is a huge cultural phenomenon. Taylor Swift is a huge cultural phenomenon. So now 
Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey are getting all kinds of pushback by the content creators on social media. Why? Because of what we just talked about. They have to have content and engagement to make their money. And the truth is saying something outrageous will get you as much and probably quicker and probably faster and with a lot less work on your part engagement than putting out good content. It's just the way it is. So there's a bunch of bad faith accounts on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook. Even news outlets do this. Even places on the right and libertarian places are covering this story and writing about Taylor Swift. The Federalist had a particularly stupid article on it about it. All this is, it doesn't have anything to do with Taylor Swift. It doesn't have anything to do with Travis Kelsey. It doesn't have anything to do with the NFL. Those are just the biggest targets on the block for the culture farmers. They're farming content to get you to react to it so that they can make more money. It doesn't matter what they say. The more outrageous, the better. This is the crash TV of the 90s put online for better or for worse. But these content farmers, these culture-warring farmers, they're turnip farmers. They're not giving anything good. No offense to turnip farmers. We all love turnips. It's a fine vegetable. But the content of this is just not good. Don't get wrapped up in it. That's one portion of this. The other portion on stories like the Taylor Swift thing going viral you need to beware of the back channel. Now, what's a back channel? If you pay real close attention to social media and news media, especially when it comes to politics and culture war issues, you can see the back channel really quick because multiple outlets that are all aligned, that have a lot of um, integrated parts, they'll all start covering it the same way at the same time. That's clue one that something going viral isn't organically going viral. It's getting pushed. Same thing with Certain things in politics, the political networks, the fundraising networks, those emails go out. Remember, journalists, everybody fussed about the right does that too. Everybody does it. Everybody's got their Rolodex. They all talk to each other. Look for the back channels on these stories. So something like Taylor Swift, all of a sudden, a whole bunch of more right-leaning culture-warring institutions and articles and sites and accounts and personalities all at the same time decide Taylor Swift's bad. No, that's not organic. All of those interconnected back channels said we can make some money this way. They don't say it that way. It's just ingrained in them because that's what they're doing. They're chasing those clicks. They're chasing those outrages. I think Taylor Swift's plenty talented. There's a couple Taylor Swift songs I really like. I don't understand this hysteria over it, but I get it. This happens all the time. Next generation will have one. The generation after that will have one. Every generation before us has had something like Taylor Swift. She's very talented. God bless her. I got no problem with her. Travis Kelsey is a hilarious personality, which is why I think this is probably mostly a work and they're having fun with the media. But these untoward actors online understand that if you're just spreading it or retweeting it or sharing it to dunk on it, that don't work anymore. You're not shaming them. They can't be shamed because the more you talk about them in any way, shape or form, you're giving them more money. You're paying their bills. You're incentivizing them to continue to do this. Your only option here is to opt out. I know people be like, no, you have to fight these people. No, you're nailing jello to the wall. And there's no way that you're going to get down in the muck and the mess of these people without getting it all over you because that's what they want. They want you down to their level. You can opt out. You can choose not to do it. If a Taylor Swift song comes on, you can choose whether or not you think it's a good song. You can cheer for the Chiefs and Travis Kelsey or not. I don't care. I appreciate their talent. I'm not a Kansas City fan. Whatever. I do like football. I can appreciate the talent. Can you keep it at that level? Because once you start going to the enragement and the outrage and the engagement of it, now you're just a consumer and a pawn for these bad faith actors to keep doing the things that aren't helping our discourse. The same thing goes in politics. Back channels. Engagement for clicks. Man, we got a bunch of people running for president just so they can write off their expenses for six to nine months. That's exactly what they're doing. We have all kinds of nonprofits. A lot of people just writing off their living expenses, not really accomplishing anything. Folks, we can do better than this, but it starts with us not participating in the bad stuff. Taylor Swift is not the end of the republic. And if you think she is, the problem is not Taylor Swift. It's you. 
And it's probably starting with the stuff you've been feeding your mind from the online outlets that got you to the place where you believe so much nonsense like that in the first place. Don't do that. Turn down the noise. Get good information. Quit thinking whoever the biggest pop star in the world is, is the problem with all of society. It's not. It's us. Because we don't demand better. More Hertel right after this. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then... Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. to her tell this is an interesting story terrifying to some folks probably but i i find it fascinating because this is one of those things where the world changes and you're just going to have to adapt and deal with the change because there's not going to be a whole lot you can do about this people talk about privacy online we just need to realize there's no such thing as privacy online once you click that button for consent your stuff's out there um i've told my children i try to remember this myself if you are in public, just assume you're being videoed. Just assume somebody somewhere has a camera and whatever you're doing is going to get caught on camera and conduct yourself accordingly. You know, there's the old joke about integrity is what you do when nobody's looking. Well, if you're in public now, everybody has a camera in their phone. Most places have security cameras. A lot of places have other kind of cameras. There's cameras everywhere. Your integrity is basically, if you're in public, just assume you're being on video and that video will go viral if you do anything you shouldn't do or get caught in a situation and keep that in mind. Probably a good rule of thumb to live by. This is from 404 Media. If you're not familiar with 404 Media, that's some folks that were at another outlet that I won't mention. They have bound together and and put this together. They deal a lot with tech. But this is a very troubling story in some ways it's something we need to deal with not just the specifics of this piece and this topic but it goes to a larger issue and it's going to talk about tiktok but you can put this to any social media you can think of um i'm going to read a portion of it this was written by joseph cox 404 media we will link to the entire piece um a viral tiktok account is doxing ordinary and otherwise anonymous people on the internet using off-the-shelf facial recognition technology, creating content, and growing a following by taking advantage of a fundamental new truth. Privacy is now essentially dead in the public spaces. I'm reading from 404 Media here. The 90,000-follower-strong account picks targets who appeared in other viral videos or people suggested the account in the comments. Hold on to that thought. I'm going to come back to it. Suggested to the account in the comments. Many of the account's videos show the process. Screenshotting the video of the target, cropping the image of the face, running those photos through facial recognition software, and then revealing the person's full name, social media, sometimes their employer, to millions of people who have liked the videos. There's an entire branch of content on TikTok in which creators show off their um, 
onset, which is just open source intelligence, just a fancy word for being able to Google stuff, basically, or information that is openly available online. But the vast majority of them do it with the ex explicit consent of the target. This account is doing the same, but without the consent of the people they choose to dox. As a bizarre aside, the account appears to be run by a Taylor Swift fan with many of the doxing videos, including Swift's music and including videos of people at the Eras tour. The 404 Media is not naming the account because TikTok has decided not to remove it. TikTok told me the account does not violate its terms and policies. One expert I spoke to said TikTok should reevaluate that position. Nevertheless, the TikTok account, conversations with the victims, and TikTok's own lack of actions on the account show that access to facial recognition technology, combined with a cultural belief that anything public is fair game to exploit for clout, now means that all it takes is one random person on the internet to target you and lead a crowd in your direction. One target told me he felt violated after the TikTok account using facial recognition technology targeted him. Another said they felt flattered before that promptly gave way to worry. All of the victims I spoke to echoed one general point. This behavior showed them just how exposed we all potentially are by existing in public. Now, there's a couple things here. One is... You can hear the naysayers already going, well, they put it out there. Yes, they put it out there. That's something you need to be cognizant of. Now, my social media, this show, my tweeting, the other things I do, I have my real name on everything. Um, one is because I'm not super worried about getting doxxed. I mean, what are they going to do? Go after my VA check? I, <laughs> you know, and we don't do a whole lot of fire throwing here either. Where this becomes a problem is back up there where they said, and commenters giving them by. This turns into a mob thing really quick. We have all seen, any of us that are on social media, we have seen the pile on where once you start attacking somebody online, just everybody piles on and it becomes a gang mentality, a mob mentality really, really quickly. And everybody just jumps on the person and becomes disproportionate and unfair to whatever the actual um, problem or crime or whatever it is they did in the first place to get that pile on, it almost always ends up being worse than what they actually did. This is a mob mentality that is digitized. The fact that these folks want to just go after people and it becomes a self-sustaining, self-growing thing, and somebody's making a lot of money on this, don't kid yourself, content and clout equals money and influence and power, and that's what they're getting here. Now you're part of something. Now you're part of the people that are going after other people. You're not the people going after. It's a bully mindset. It's the bully mindset of people that go along with the bully. And it's bad on a lot of levels. Now, it's probably not illegal. Should the platforms crack down on this? Yes, they should. But considering the we've talked about on the program over and over again, the influences the, that are behind TikTok, especially in the communist Chinese dictatorship that has a lot of say in what TikTok does, you know, these things, they're happy to let our culture break down. They do not care. They're not going to crack down on this. So what should you do? Well, you can protect yourself a little bit. Make sure you're guarding your things. Look, I have some social media rules. I My underage children, even my two children that are adults now, I don't put their names and stuff out there on my own social media so people can't find them. Um, things like that. I've had a pretty good experience online. I've had a few things, you know, and I'm not talking about just like the random person going, I hope you die, that sort of thing. You know, do you get a death threat once in a while? Yeah, I've got a few of those. I've gotten one or two that were serious enough that I kind of looked into them to see if that was a threat or not because people lose their mind online. First thing is take care of yourself. Keep your own bearing. Don't do bad things. Treat the online accounts like you would treat a person sitting in front of you. The second thing is you got to understand Social media, like money, power, and alcohol, strip people down to their barest instincts, and a lot of those instincts are bad. They get keyboard courage. They talk big. They threaten people. They talk. They insult. They do bad things. You just have to understand bad faith actors love things like social media because they think they can do it anonymously. Most of the time, they will get away with it, and they can act any way they want. The unfortunate part of this sort of thing is it's not those bad faith actors that wind up getting doxxed and dogpiled online. It's usually some people that are either completely innocent or somebody who made an honest mistake and didn't do something they shouldn't have said or said something they shouldn't have. And while, you know, dunking on somebody is all well and good and fair game, it quickly turns into the entire Internet mob going after somebody's livelihood and their personal life 
God forbid they start going after people's families and things like this. Just keep your perspective. But this is something we need to talk about in our society. Now that social media is a clout platform, the way Twitter is trending now, where those blue checks that people pay for, now you can get paid for your certain content, so they're cranking up the crazy because it gets more content because good content and bad content pay the exact same. This is something we need to be cognizant of in our social media. Don't participate in the bad protect yourself from the bad, try to be a force for good. Because the other thing about it is you're like, well, we'll just all leave. Well, if all the good people leave, then what do you got left? So don't just give up the fight on it. Be a good person online. Be a good person in real life. Try to keep the unworthy schemers at arm's length. But be aware, this is what's happening online. The monetization is trending towards stuff like this. And when people can start using the technology like facial recognition and doxing, to make more and more money and get more and more clout, we're going to see more and more of this hot mess. It's unfortunate. we got to deal with the world as it is. Protect yourself, protect your family, and make sure you're aware that this is going on. We'll link to the whole piece in the Substack notes like we always do, hertel.substack.com, where we never, ever dox anybody, and it only costs you a click. More Hertel right after this. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, new face on the program. Excited to have him. Been talking to him anyway. Might as well get him on the show, Connor Vasily. He's a Young Voices contributor. He's also a law student. We're not going to hold that against him, though, for the purposes of this conversation. Going to talk a little criminal justice. How are you, Connor? Good to see you, my friend. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, sir. I, I want to talk about it this way with you because criminal justice, justice reform, social justice, crime, however you want to phrase the overarching thing of talking about law and order in the United States of America. This thing's gotten buzzworded to death. I think we need to take a step back and talk about what we're actually talking about because we get all these viral videos of violence, even though those are the exception, not the norm. You see more of those than you do the norm because the norm is boring and doesn't trend. We know there's problems in the criminal justice system from corruption to bad cops to good cops to criminals getting off easy, criminals getting treated too harshly. Where do you even start when you want to have an honest conversation about criminal justice with all this stuff? Because it's so big and everybody just picks out their one little piece of it. And then we never talk about the overall problem. How would you address it? How would you start? Where would you start? It's a very important question. You know, it's been a very polarizing subject, especially in the last few years, especially with the pandemic. And what people need to do is just take a breath, look at, as you said, the big picture and really understand where we're coming from as a country and society when it comes to crime and not just these headlines, not just the trending stories and the topics that come about. Uh, and what we're seeing right now as a trend, unfortunately, but it is happening throughout the country, is basically you have politicians, you have elected officials and even police departments that are just flat out not respecting the law. And the people, once they get caught up and distracted by the headlines and about these uh, extraordinary cases, they're losing sight on what actually matters. And that's the enforcement of actual law and property rights in America. And that's, I think, a good place to start with this conversation. I think it's a good place to start, too, because what we have here is a vicious cycle. But I don't think folks understand what the vicious cycle is. One of those advantages that age, I'm a little bit older. I remember when we did the 90s crackdown, right, on we're going to fix violent crime, Clinton era, right? Um, there was a senator named Joe Biden. He was a senator at the time, was front and center on a lot of this stuff, right? Never heard of him. Yeah, yeah I wonder what happened to that guy. But anyway, yeah. and I'm not picking on him and I'm not picking on Clinton. And I'm not, Look, at the time, it was politically feasible what they did. But now we've got 25, 30 years of data on what we did when you increase the incarceration rate because you want to be tough on crime, you get more people in a corrupt system in the criminal justice system that has problems, more people get sucked into it, they don't get treated correctly when they're in the system, then they get put back in society, it's part of the vicious cycle. The government learned that crime is big business, whether you're a local municipality, a city, a county, a state, whatever, even the federal agencies, we spend more money now on law enforcement than we ever have, that's big business, 
on top of what they're actually supposed to be doing, that's part of the vicious cycle. And then there's all kinds of people that are just stuck somewhere between those grinding gears that are getting chewed up. That's part of the cycle. And then there's people that actually want to fix the problem, don't know even where to start. That's part of the cycle. And you got corruption. I could do this list for the next hour. It's all part of the vicious cycle, but we don't get that step back to see that those are all parts of the cycle. Where do we bring the history into this? Because nothing happens in a vacuum. It all happens in a sequence. Where would you start a sequence to talk about the way you just framed all this? I think the 90s is a really great place to start. I mean, uh, the people who support law and order and I guess uh, more application therein, they would automatically go to you know New York under Giuliani as their prime example. You know, he was very tough on crime. He cracked down on criminals, violent crime, and it worked to an extent for a very long time. Uh, so that's one end of the spectrum, right? And then on the other side, you're saying you need restorative justice. You need um, to basically make amends for the abuses found in the system, like you just mentioned, uh, which is needed, of course. However, you're seeing that taken to the extreme where people are basically um, justifying recidivism, where they put violent criminals, people who hold others at gunpoint or they assault them, and then they're out within a few days. Um, so there's just there's no balancing act. There's just polarity when it comes to this conversation. So in terms of historiosity, we can definitely look at, let's say, the 90s and how, for example, in L.A. with the with the riots and the gang activity, they really cracked down on that crime. However, they did not do so in general, uh, in generally speaking, uh, to benefit the communities. It was only to benefit uh, reducing crime rate. So what we need to do is actually find a balance between Yes, cracking down on crime, but also making sure that it stays that way, that people feel safe in these communities and actually are able to walk out without getting assaulted or robbed every single day. And unfortunately, we're seeing a loop where that's actually happening, like in California right now. Yeah. How much is social media exacerbating the problem here? Look, there's no way you're going to fix this because... Look, violence going to always trend. Violent movies have always done well. Violent books before that. Violent, I don't know if they did violence on the printing presses, but I'm sure they did in some form or another. That, that's a human condition issue. Social media has just amplified it. How did we deal with that piece of it? Because anytime you want to, look, I'm online. I try to talk about it. It's like, we're going to talk about this. Somebody's always going to have a worse example of the other extreme to throw up with you, probably on video. Um, how do we deal with that part of it when we're trying to have a good conversation about working on things involving the criminal justice system? Because there's no way around it now, right? Of course. I mean, the culture is definitely desensitized to this idea of violence. You know, we see it every day, whether it's actual live feed video or, as you said, in movies and books. But at the same time, even though we're desensitized by it, we can't get enough of it. We're obsessed with it because it's scandalous. It's something new. It's something exciting for our lives. Um, so in terms of that, we just need to be a little more objective when it comes to actual crime, because, yes, we can point to those uh, as analogies, as examples of the crime that is experienced day to day. However, we cannot make that the rule. We have to look at actual crime statistics, even the FBI crime statistics, although, you know, take that with a grain of salt um, and really realize, OK, how are our communities, our neighborhoods as a whole being affected by crime, not only on the daily, but yearly and not just on a case-by-case -case basis. That's what's important. Yeah, Connor Vasily joining us. Let's talk about those crime rates for a minute. Look, I, I'm with Vin Scully. You know, statistics are a fine thing, but often they're a lamppost instead of illumination. They're just holding drunk people up. Uh, you can make a stat sure. say anything you want. Um, crime stats are complicated because they involve context. Chicago's crime stats, that's a big red shirt for a lot of people on the right. Those aren't Atlanta's crime stats, which aren't New York's crime stats, which ain't Omaha's, which ain't Somersville, West Virginia's my little old hometown. Those are all different. Crime stats need context. Violent crime is different than property crime, which is different than other crime. How do we look when we see a headline 
and they just have a stat in there. Violent crimes up, violent crimes down, usually one or the other. How do we contextualize past that? Because you can tell people violent crime is down, but they're seeing more viral images of violent crime and they think it's a problem. Look at the shoplifting stuff. Certain parts of the country is having shoplifting epidemics. But overall, those crimes are actually down. It's in specific places. How do we contextualize the headlines and not just get wrapped up in the viral moments of it? I think headlines are just that. They're just headlines. They're there to get, gain clicks and views. Uh, you know, they can use any statistics they want, whether they're merited or not. But at the end of the day, they're only used to garner attention. Uh, as you said, statistics, of course, it could be used by either side and manipulate it however way you want. That's why you need to specifically look at statistics from your region or your city. Chicago crime is not going to have the same sources as, say, New York crime or San Francisco, San Francisco crime. Therefore, you can't just have this blanket approach to crime and let's say, okay, we're going to enforce the law in New York the same way we'll do in Oakland, California. That's not going to work because they all have different sources uh, and different impediments to their application, right? So, for example, you just look up Chicago crime on Google. The top, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 results shows toddler shot this weekend, six people shot this weekend, a person uh, mugged in broad daylight. You see this constant just doom and gloom of what's happening in that city. However, these headlines and these news sources, they are just masking the problem with statistics by showing either how good it is or how bad it is. When in, the, in reality, what we need to be doing is saying, okay, what's happening in these cities? What's happening in these towns? What's happening with these politicians in those offices that's preventing this crime from being reduced and bringing safety to these communities? It's similar, like you just said, how they uh, uh, were manipulating, oh, yes, violent crime is down. Well, New York had that problem. Violent crime is down. Well, yes, but then you have shoplifting, you have uh, theft, other misdemeanor charges that they don't technically constitute as violent crime on the rise. And it fluctuates depending on quarter, depending on the month. But at the end of the day, they're not actually addressing the real issues for those specific communities. So, yes, we shouldn't be using blanket statements in that sense. But statistics, based on where you are, can definitely help in terms of creating a path to where we should start at the very least. Yeah, Connor Vasily joining us. You touched on it right there. Um, I, I know you've talked about it and wrote about it before. You know, you got to have law and order to have a society that functions. You got to have some structural order. I think part of the problem here, though, is our automatic impulses, at least in America and the modern generation, is well, we need law and order let's punish the criminals. Do we need to change that mindset a little bit to, we need law and order, let's get the institutions that are in charge of law and order in order first, and then you can address the crime. It almost feels like it's backwards because when you look at some of the stuff that's going on, whether it's the issues in prisons that are getting worse by the day, underfunded, underpaid, they can't even take, look, in custody's in care. You can say lock them up, but then you gotta take care of them. That's just the fact of it. What we saw in Uvalde, which is it mostly an outlier, but it's a horrible example of what happens when you've got incompetence. And I'm just going to call it incompetence, to, and that's being nice. Police corruption, bad shootings. But then you got, you know, good police trying to do honest work. You have prosecutorial overreach, and you got good prosecutors trying to do good work that get damaged by them. Do we need to start with the mindset shift of law and order starts with having good institutions of law and order and good law enforcement and then go after the crime? Because it seems like we're doing this backwards and it's actually corrupting the law and order institutions to me. You know, I, I always love to use the, uh, the analogy of uh, when you're on an airplane and God forbid there is an emergency or something that happens and the emergency oxygen comes down. They always tell you, put your mask on first and then help the person next to you. Because if you're passed out, you can't help that person. You're both screwed. So in that sense, of course, we cannot just put this Band-Aid over law enforcement and be like, okay, we need to support all law enforcement measures, all the police, regardless, you know, blind loyalty, because that's going to help them uh, reduce crime rate. Of course not. I mean, like you just mentioned in Uvalde and countless other instances, we have utter incompetence on the hands of the police or the administration in charge there. They are either neglectful. They're underprepared, understaffed, uh, undertrained. All these aspects come into play and they only exacerbate problems like Uvalde. 
So we can't just have this nice PR sort of slogan, oh yes, we need more law enforcement, if the system itself is corrupted. So we definitely need to improve training, improve protocol. Uh, like you mentioned, in the prison system, we can't just throw, throw them in there and lock away the key. That's at the very least abuse, right? So we need to actually improve those systems to show, okay, we are respecting the law, we are enforcing the law, but also we have a plan in mind to execute when that law is broken. You can't just have empty promises like you see right now in Chicago or LA or other big blue cities where they're saying we're going to crack down on crime, but then nothing happens because the police are basically um, cut off at the hip, so to speak, when it comes to actually enforcing their own laws. Yeah, Connor Vasily joining us. I'm going to crib this from our friend Michael Siegel, who's on this program all the time, but uh, he, he was writing about some law and order stuff and he just kind of laid it out he's like you know the government has a great habit of trying to solve crime by punishing law-abiding citizens that's kind of the ancillary to what you just talked about whether it's you know oh there's gun crime let's go after gun owners not that we can't have the conversation but it's a reflexive action it's like oh well this is bad let's just ban it for everybody well do you really need to do that or is it just the criminals doing that is there any way to get that out of the system? Bureaucracy kind of tends towards stuff like that. Our law enforcement has really gotten bureaucratic the further down the road we go because it's all based on funding and budgeting and grant writing, things like that. So you got to find those things. How do we get a mentality for our governmental? Because, look, let's be honest what policing is. It's the armed enforcement wing of the government. That's a proper role, but that is its role. That's what it is. How do we get that to where it, we don't just say, let's solve crime by punishing the citizenry for their everyday activities and actually deal with crime and criminals instead? Because we're lumping everybody together, and then that feeds into that cycle we just talked about of too much incarceration over policing, police issue. You're putting the police in a bad spot when you just have to go after the good guys that are on the margins all the time, aren't you? Oh, of course. I mean, just look at New York, New York City, for example. They have thousands and thousands of cops. It's, it's practically an army. It's all controlled by the police union. You can't uh, sit there and tell me that, okay, every police uh, officer, every uh, police sergeant or any administrative individual with the NYPD actually cares for every single uh, constituent that they're in, in the precinct. That's ridiculous. I mean, as you said, there's this over-bureaucratization of these police forces where they're just caring about the funds and how to allocate them to various needs or various uh, processes rather than actually uh, dealing with the crime at hand. So that's why I'm a huge proponent of actual local policing and local law enforcement through the use of, let's say, a sheriff's department. We actually have to elect these people into office to not only represent the constituency, but to be held liable if crime is not uh, uh, put down, if laws aren't enforced. So I don't want to be sounding a little blackpilled here, but in terms of changing the culture of our institutions, the big uh, police departments, the big administrative bodies, they're not going to change because they have the incentive through the pay that they get through the state or through other means. What we got to do is have some attempt of a grassroots movement to basically have community policing through a sheriff's department, through elected officials per se, and actually get what we need for our specific communities uh, done. Yeah, Connor Vasily joining us. I've, I've gotten that criticism over the years in my writing because I talk about it. And, and, um, and because I do it, I try to take a holistic look at this stuff. I'm like, look, you can't talk about law enforcement and criminal justice without talking about bigger societal issues like class, like race, like demographics, like the economy. Every stat we got shows those all play a part in this. But the other part of this when you're discussing it is I've had feedback. People are like, why are you so hard on police? And it's like, I'm not hard on police. I believe in police. But if you actually care about something, you hold it accountable. You're never going to hold criminals accountable. You can catch them, punish them, try to rehabilitate them. But you can't hold criminals, that amalgamous mass of them out there, accountable. Our sworn officials that take a paycheck work for us and are under government oversight, they can be held accountable that's two different things. I think accountability, top to bottom, and citizenry has an accountability there too, by the way. They have an accountability to help their police, to work with their police. I think accountability is a missing piece to what's broken in the community and the policing and that relationship. What do you think? As you mentioned before, the police have a monopoly on violence. 
So you can back the blue no matter who all you want. But at the end of the day, these are agents of the state, armed agents of the state. So, yes, we can support law enforcement, but that doesn't mean we have to take it to the extent where anything they do is permissible just to lock up bad guys, whoever those bad guys are. Because, you know, at the end of the day, they are human beings just like us. They're capable of error, but they're put in a position where they have a higher amount of authority over us with qualified immunity to boot. So that's it makes it even uh, more of a risky situation because you have people who are capable of violence through their monopoly of the government, local, state, whatever. Uh, and you're telling me they're not going to be held accountable for what they do. We've seen countless instances where police have uh, conducted gross misconduct. We can't let that slide because those are people's lives that they're affecting. So there's that nuance in that conversation that has to be had. It's not just back the blue or social justice. It's basically preserving our liberties and our rights as citizens. And if they do not honor that, I don't care if they're police. I don't care if they're criminal. They should be held liable because the most important thing at the end of the day is the preservation of our rights regardless. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Connor Vasily joining us. Policing has a lot of theory, law enforcement, social justice. There's a lot of theory to it, how things should be. Um, I was reading through some of your writing. I'm, I'm, I'm a historian at heart. My dad was a history teacher. I like to go to history and find concrete examples to apply to the modern. Give me one or two historical examples, because America's system is very unique. This is a unique experiment in a people self-governing that we got going here that we're trying to keep going anyway. Give me a couple historic examples of stuff, maybe even from our American history, maybe even older history and world history of stuff that we can maybe apply to, you know, it's not going to fit perfectly, but maybe a couple guardrails going forward as we try to make this thing a little better. Give us a couple examples. Well, in terms of historical examples for potential solutions, the first thing that comes to mind is the idea of minarchism, right? So back in uh, the 1600s, 1700s in Europe, you basically had this concept of a night watchman where you'd have your little community or even your neighborhood 
and they would basically elect or volunteer, maybe sometimes there was a paid position, to have people patrol and protect the streets during the nighttime when people slept or even during business hours. So we have this idea of a communal approach where the people who are doing the enforcement of the law are actually part of those communities. You're not going to have, a, for example, a state trooper hundreds of miles away coming over to where you are in your county and trying to enforce the law. By having them in your area, in your region, you're actually basically giving the message that we care about the people here, we understand the people here, and we are still going to enforce the law for them. It's the difference between having, let's say, a local sheriff versus a county from thousands of miles away. That's the big difference. You want to make law enforcement personable and relatable as opposed to this cold, distant structure that just looks over everyone at all times. Connor Vasily joining us. Let's, let's kind of round this out back kind of where we started with a little bit bigger picture. When it comes to law enforcement and justice and that social media element, like people who are probably way too, like I'm one of them because nature of the business, I'm way too online. So I, I don't see this like probably the average American adult does. Where do we talk about it in a way that people understand? It's like, look, most people's interaction with the government other than paying their taxes is going to be with law enforcement or a first responder and something. That's the one time they interact with the government in a very real uh, way, hopefully in a peaceable way, but you never know. And not always crime, you know, car accidents, property damage, natural disasters. There's lots of reasons, you know, security at the school. You may have a resource officer, whatever. How do we get people to understand, especially people that are very online, that are living in their comfort bubble, and we'll put it in a nice way, that this affects everybody. Like if you've, if you've got problems in the criminal justice system, not just your tax dollars, this is an ecosystem that affects absolutely every America and everybody in that ecosystem benefits from the ecosystem being healthy. And you might think it's not damaging you and your family and your community just because you ain't seeing the viral video down the street. It really is. How do we change that conversation to end up where we started with this conversation of that social media overarching how do we talk about a thing? Because I think that's an important piece to try to actually start making some headway here. Definitely. I think, especially now more than ever, people are in their own little echo chambers. So they just rely on one or two news sources or whatever it confirms their own biases without actually thinking critically about the issue as a whole. And I think social media has basically become this crutch where people go and they're like, hey, look at this. Oh, did you see this video? As opposed to actually conversing and bringing up bringing up a discussion so my uh my go-to instinctual response to that would just be start a conversation actually talk to people in real life or over the phone or something besides just through the transmission of viral video clips actually get their thoughts on it and if you disagree with it then that's fine but you at least need to start that conversation to spark that debate because then it gets people's minds working a little bit better because this crutch of social media and Twitter and these clips, that only polarizes people because it just reinforces what they already believe. We need to actually go out. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. You need to really talk to these people and realize, listen, in our community, there's this crime. This just happened the other day. What can we do to better it and actually have that drawn out talk? And, you know, it's a slow process, but that's the only thing we can do, I think, at this point without just depending on an app on your phone. Yeah, good points. Connor Vasil. I, I I do it when we have police incidents and it is like, you know, we used to call the police, you know, peace officers for a reason. Mm. And I think if we got that mentality back, that would be a nice good starting point for stuff like keep the peace. You're a peace officer. But we'll bang that drum some other day. Connor Vasily, love the conversation, my friend. Let folks know. He's done a lot of writing on this, done some media on this. We're going to put all the links in the Substack notes. He's got a couple different pieces we want you to read through. Let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you until we get you back on Hertel again, my friend. Great. Thank you. Well, if you want to follow me, you can follow me at, at Connor underscore Vasil on Twitter. And I look forward to starting conversations with you all. Yeah, always appreciate you talking. We'll have you back soon. Connor, thank you, sir. Appreciate your time. Thank you.
Hi, welcome back to Heard Tell. As um, the immigration problems and the borders problems and the migrant crisis continue to dominate the news, I just wanted to give you a touch point on why this is such an electoral issue and an example of how it gets used. If you missed us uh, last episode, the interview with our friend Adam Bass up in Massachusetts, local reporter covering locally what happens when these migrants come to town and what that looks like on a local level with the city and the state trying to communicate and those things. Make sure you go back and listen to that. Especially things like New York, where New York's saying, well, we're overrun. And everybody's like, well, it was fine when Texas had to deal with it. Now it's a problem. That's a little bit of an oversimplification. But the optics of it, the passion of it, the issues with the border and immigration crisis go really deep. And they're very complicated because we don't want to fix legal immigration and then we don't want to do border security. And you got to do both of those things at the same time to actually get a resolution to this stuff. And there's no political will to do either of those because a lot of people, frankly, profit from this being a big red hot mess. But let me give you an example from personal experience of how this plays electorally. Back in the 2022 election, the midterms, uh, then Congressman Ted Budd, he's now the U.S. Senator from North Carolina, was running for that Senate seat. He was decidedly, if you're not familiar with how that race played out, uh, he was the underdog in that race. Nobody really thought he had a chance. At the state convention the year prior, uh, Donald Trump walked on stage and without telling anybody about it, and I actually interviewed a couple people in the room for the same radio station that I'm getting ready to talk to. They were in the room. They had no idea who was going to do this. He up and endorsed Ted Budd a year ahead of time. And everybody's like, wait, what? Ted Budd? Who? Why? Why would you do that? So Ted Budd had a strategy, which, frankly, I didn't think was going to work, but it did. So credit to him. He rode that Trump endorsement. He went to 55 counties in North Carolina that they had targeted. He did almost exclusively media um, through outside organizations and the Trump fundraising network. And he won his seat. But in the middle of that campaign, I interviewed him for our radio partner down in Wilmington, North Carolina, for the show at the time. And we're getting ready to rejoin uh, that network here probably in October. Looking forward to that. But I interviewed him for the radio. Uh, the producer down there called said, hey, we're getting Ted Budd on the radio. Would you do the interview for him? I said, sure, I would. Now, this is in North Carolina. This isn't a border state, but it is a swing state. It is a highly competitive state, has a Democratic governor, even though the House, uh, the, the legislature has gone Republican um, for several years now. And there's been a move towards the right in both the House seats and in both Senate seats. But I'm interviewing him for the radio and something really interesting happened. He was traveling with an entourage. Um, this was a phone interview. And in the middle of the interview, while I'm talking to him, he's touring with the head of the Border Patrol's um, union or whatever they call it. I forget off the top of my head. So the representative for the Border Patrol is touring and campaigning in North Carolina with Ted Budd for this Senate seat. And this is one of those campaign days where, you know, they do lots of interviews. They're going from, you know, place to place. I'm talking to them on the phone between interviews. They're doing media hits between them. And this wasn't just us that this happened to. It happened to many, many people. And in the middle of the interview, this is all planned, by the way. This was part of their strategy. They said, let me explain to you how big the border issue is. Here's so-and-so from the Border Patrol and hands them the phone in the middle of the interview. This is very unusual. I, you don't usually see people handing the phone over to somebody else. But that was their plan. Now, kind of rolled with it because it took me as a surprise because that's not what I'd prepped for. But talk to that guy. He did give the phone back um, <laughs> to uh, Ted Budd, and we did get to finish the interview. Got to talk about the other thing. Got it back on course. But it's an example. In North Carolina in 2022, Ted Budd running for a U.S. Senate seat thought it was such a hot-button issue that he was touring with a rep from the Border Patrol and interrupting his own media hits, not just ours. He did this with TV hits. He was doing this with radio hits. It was a planned strategy of getting the Border Patrol rep on the phone to talk about the border. That's how important it was, especially to the GOP base that he was courting. So you have to believe that this is going to be a big issue on the right. Now, nationally, how big an issue is it going to be? The economy is probably going to be a little bit bigger, things like that. But the things that have transpired since then, places like Texas, and Florida, where they bus and ship and fly migrants north to the big cities, 
they're doing that primarily for the optics of it and to get the coverage of it because it amplifies that message and that message plays really well with not only their base, but also their fundraising base, the donor base and the folks they're courting. So remember, this stuff is all strategy and the strategy has shifted now. And frankly, the leadership in places like New York City, Mayor Adams and them, they're not handling it real well and it's making them look bad. The strategy is working. But understand, it is a strategy and it is a strategy for both electoral success fundraising and consolidating power within your own party. It also goes back to something else I just said. There's very few people who really want to fix this immigration problem because it would get rid of a lot of fundraising. It would get rid of a lot of political power. Everybody knows how to fix the immigration and migrant situation in America. You simplify and improve legal immigration, which by and large itself will cut down on most of the illegal immigration, and then you secure the border. Not just in performative ways, not in sending, <laughs> saying you're sending National Guard troops and you're really just sending admins to go and, you know, work on the computer 20 miles from the border, which is what most of those folks are doing. Not by putting razor wire along the border. You actually secure it, which would be multi-phase, multi-dimensional and using things like technology, not just a wall, although you can put a wall in certain places, but people can do it. The Israelis have secured their border. You can do it, but we don't have a will to do it. Because we'd rather have the performative that plays into our priors than actually fixing the problem. Meanwhile, a lot of people suffer. The country looks bad. Our leadership gets to do things they shouldn't be doing because they get to stonewall and get on their soapbox about this issue. And the world keeps turning. And while this will be a huge electoral issue in 2024, I suspect nothing will get done and we'll do it again in the 2026 midterms and the 2028 election and probably every election for the rest of my lifetime. What a sad, sad state of affairs. More Heard Tell right after this. That'll do it for this edition of Herd Tell. Wherever you are, you can join us through whatever medium you're listening to. If you're on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, we're even on some podcasts over in India. You folks in India, we see you on the stats. Welcome. Thank you. Drop us a line. We're all over the world and on any podcasting platform you can think of. Make sure you're subscribing and or following or whatever that platform calls it. That helps us keep track of you, lets us know how you're listening to the program, make sure we can tailor it to get it to you. Heard Tell Show or my name, Andrew Donaldson, on any of those platforms, it'll come right up. But we have a one-stop shop for everything that we do, herdtell.substack.com. It's completely free. Subscribe. You get everything right into your inbox. Anytime I write, do a media appearance, do a new episode of Heard Tell. We also have Heard Tell specials. We're going to get back to doing the twice on Sunday recap shows. We also have a huge archive, so we're going to have some specials, some best of, things like that, and also some of the food writing from Yonder and Home. We're starting to re-up that as well. we got over 600 episodes of Heard Tell in the archive to start porting over. We're going to be working on that. So sign up for the Substack, please. Get you right in your inbox. Never miss anything. Doesn't cost you anything more than a click. Herdtell.substack.com. We sure appreciate it. And follow us on social media. Herdtell Show on the Twitter. Four for the Fire is my personal Twitter handle. No, we're not going to call it X. But if you could share us and let folks know that our programs we're checking out, we sure would appreciate it. So wherever you are, across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. We'll talk to you real soon for the next Hurt Tell. All the music on Hurt Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 
Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.